0: Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general.
1: Indeed, we are. And mm-hmm. we are back. We're existing. We are thriving. We really are thriving. We really are thriving. We really so. are thriving. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. And we're back and we're going to do another biography today that's what we're diving into
0: Ooh. Mm-hmm.
1: we are going to be talking about the life of Dr. Margaret Chung the first Chinese American physician to practice in the United States Ooh. and yeah and before I say more about her what if anything do you know Charlotte
0: I can truly say I don't know anything about Margaret <laughs> That's okay. It's a very I had a feeling. Answer.
1: And it's no, it's all right. I honestly didn't know anything about her before I researched her, but I'm so, so glad that we are celebrating her story and talking about her life today because she's seriously incredible and just all around super cool and worth talking about. Sweet. I'm very excited. So short little intro today, but let's just jump right in. I'm ready. Going head first, yeah. diving in. <laughs> we are. Watch out for concussions at the bottom of the pool. All right. So I like to start my stories, as you know, with some context, because I think that that is just a really nice way for us to understand where we're going as we jump into this. So Mm -hmm. we are going to learn a little bit about the America that we are diving into in this story of Margaret Chung's life. And so I thought I'd ask you, Shar, what you already know about what was going on in like the 1850s in America, generally. The Civil War? Good guess. So it was right after the Civil War. The Civil War had just ended. And so we're kind of hanging out in the period of reconstruction where we're trying to build back up the Union into the United States.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if you do this, but sometimes I do this thing and I didn't notice it until just now when I was looking into this episode. But it's kind of interesting oh, <laughs> when I when I think about the U.S. during the Civil War and Reconstruction, I fully do not think about the West Coast. Like in my mind, the West Coast doesn't exist. when no, I'm thinking about it like, definitely doesn't. <laughs> right. Right. Right? Like I'm thinking of a map of the United States during the Civil War. It stops at the Mississippi River. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Which, And I guess it's because California and the Western states were just territories at the time. And so... They didn't even really have a say in what happened to the country in terms of voting and stuff like that. But I was just thinking about that. And I was like, that's kind of
0: funny. I like literally Civil War America to me is just the Eastern Midwest, the in the East Coast, in the Eastern South, like not anything literally West at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I'm wondering if that's maybe what we saw in textbooks. And that's why we're remembering that for sure. Anyway, so the country is recovering from the Civil War in the 1850s. But our story is in California, where at this time, immigrants from China were migrating to the U.S. for work in the gold mines because this was the time of the California gold rush. Hmm. Yeah. And many Chinese workers were also employed in other jobs, like agricultural jobs, factory work, domestic work, things like that. And especially in the garment industry. So with all these workers coming in, Char, how do you think that people here
0: reacted? I mean, they probably didn't like it. Yeah, I'm going to go on just general <laughs> people's feelings about immigrants.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem to be positive many
0: times. No,
1: no, mostly not. And you're right. It was there was an aggressive anti-Chinese sentiment among other workers in the American economy, and just a ton of scapegoating going on. Chinese people were seen as inherently alien, they were called, quote, the yellow peril, and experienced just generally a lot of hostility and violence. There were massacres Mm -hmm. of Chinese workers, attacks in the mines, and while working on the railroads that the Chinese people endured. And they just had to live through that. And they just accepted that and like continued their lives.
0: Wow, that's hard.
1: I know it is. And even though Chinese people only made up 0.02% of the population, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882 by the US government and it banned Chinese immigration to the US until 1943. Literally why? <laughs> I don't know. I, well, I I mean it was because of all the like xenophobia that people were feeling towards Chinese folks and this was actually the first law to ban a particular nationality by name. Wow. The U.S. really just called it out like how it was. I know. They were like Chinese exclusion. Wow. Period. It also prohibited the Chinese immigrants who were already here from becoming citizens. Well, So what do yeah. the people do? I don't know. I mean, I think they were so they had certain rights in the sense that they could leave and come back to the country without having to worry about, you know, not being considered residents and things like that.
0: Well, that sucks.
1: Yeah. So all of this is really important because this is the world that Margaret Chung was born into, a country that from even before her time isolated her as the other. Her parents immigrated to California in the 1870s and were kind of recruited by the Presbyterian Church in a way. Because the church was looking Hmm. to convert Chinese immigrants, and Margaret's parents were two people who got converted, but they were just converted in different cities. Each of them got recruited by the church in different cities. Her mother was found at a brothel and given a home and stability in exchange for conversion. And then her father was similar in the conversion thing, um, and the two were just connected. By their churches because their churches were like, oh, these two would be the perfect couple. (laughs) You're like, we wonder why. (laughs) And so Margaret was born on October 2nd in 1889 in Santa Barbara, and she was the oldest of 11 children. Oh, my God. Very fertile mother was. And throughout her childhood, she was a caregiver for her siblings, along with her mother, who was also their caregiver, while her father was working in a handful of jobs because he had to consistently change jobs because of the socio-political climate that he was living in. Mm-hmm. So her dad would do things like sell vegetables and work in agriculture and sell traditional Chinese items. Um, But because he had all these jobs, he had to move around a lot. And so the family was also moving around a lot. Mm. And Margaret herself wanted to be a medical missionary when she grew up because she was taught by the church that this was the most noble profession was to serve others in this really pure way. And in fact, she was particularly excited about the idea of going back to China, though she had never been there before. To work in foreign hospitals and help those with disease. This was like her youngin's gold when they were like, oh, Margaret, what do you want to be when you grow up? She was like, a medical missionary, mommy.
0: That's so much better than
1: (laughs) a lot of people's answers. (laughs) Like, I want to be a ballerina doctor teacher. (laughs) Astronaut. I,
0: that That's how you know it was a calling.
1: Yeah, no, truly. <laughs> All these people who were like, I came out of the womb and I knew I wanted to be a doctor. It's like, no, you did not. <laughs> but Margaret <laughs> no, did. <you> didn't. <laughs> she did. She really did. And actually, it was even more exacerbated by the fact that, well, I'll tell you in a sec, but basically she was taking care of her family and spending time with them while also doing a bunch of random jobs in the places that they moved to. She was sometimes a rancher. Sometimes she worked in a restaurant to support her family. She was also the primary caregiver for her mother who got sick. And Char, what disease do you think her mother had? I'll give you a hint. It was a very common respiratory infection at the time, not
0: COVID. (laughs) Well, when you said what disease, my brain instantly went tuberculosis. Good. Good job. Good job. I know you learn. I don't even know why I thought tuberculosis. I also felt like a little clenching in my chest, like a little bit of fear. So I must have like been conditioned to be like tuberculosis. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to
1: stress you out, but that's okay. You'll, you learned. Got it right though. It's okay. So she had TB, her mom had TB and Margaret had to take care of her day and night. And she would see her mother cough up blood and describe that as a really, really powerful memory for her. And she even said, quote, each month, there would be several nights that I would stand at the foot of her bed all night long, agonized in terror, watching her die a little at a time.
0: Aw. I know. That's so know. sad.
1: Isn't that so sad? So yeah, this was clearly a very formative experience for her and it pushed her because her mom eventually passed, and it pushed her to reach this goal of practicing medicine. And so she attended the University of Southern California's prep school, which was a high school, actually, that had a direct line to the medical school right after you graduated. What? So you could go, I know, so you could go from high school directly into medical school, which is honestly not that shocking. Like a lot of countries do that. Most countries besides the United States do something like that. That's true. But that's such a foreign concept to us. Like, I don't even know what that would be like. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, there's some colleges you can directly enter medical school from college. So it's like the same thing just four years later. Anyway. So in
1: 1888 the first woman was admitted to USC Med School. Like this is just for context to understand that it was 1888 that the first woman was admitted and Margaret came a, honestly short while after. She came in 1911. Okay. She was the only woman and person of color in her class, which not surprised. And while she was there, she called herself Mike. What? <laughs> and wore yeah, and wore masculine clothing. Huh. Apparently, she also started enjoying things that dudes enjoyed more, like swearing, hunting, provocative humor, which, yeah, I don't know. Sure, just dudes
0: being guys, me being dude, I guess. <laughs> Wait, I was going to say, I know many girls who also enjoy all of those things.
1: Yeah, no, I was like, oh, interesting. Um, But I guess that's that's pretty accurate for what men enjoy if we're, like, stereotyping.
0: Yeah. A little yeah. bit. But in
1: 1916, when she graduated, she was the first American born Chinese female doctor. The problem is, though, is that at first she was denied any residency program acceptance in the U.S. And then. Even the medical missions that she wanted to do in China that she like had been wanting to do since she was a kid, she got denied from. Probably her gender and her race. Like the fact that she was like American.
0: What? Yeah, I no. know. it's not sad? That is, okay, what I want to know about the residency is how, if the person doesn't accept medical school, why does that not qualify in the residency's mind to allow them, you know, like they've already broken that one barrier. I
1: doubt they had like a really solid justification. I bet they were just like, oh, you're not a good fit for our program. But like everyone said that. Right, right. But she was finally able to move to Chicago and train under Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen, who was training women, nurses, and doctors in surgery, which Ooh. was just really uncommon at the time, as we know. Yeah. And Bertha was the co founder of a very important organization, Shar. Can you guess which one you're involved in it? Amwa? Oh my gosh, Bertha. Yeah, I know. The American Medical Women's Association was co-founded by Bertha Van Hoosen, Margaret's mentor, who worked at a women's hospital in Chicago. So after her training in Chicago in 1918, she moved back to LA and she, Margaret, started developing plastic surgery skills while working at a railroad hospital in LA. Can you think of, like, why plastics at a railroad hospital? Question mark?
0: Like, just railroad injuries and wanting to, like, reconstruct. Because part of plastics is reconstructive surgery. I don't know if it was like that then. So just reconstructing, like, injuries to look more like actual body parts if it was really bad or something. That's all I got.
1: Yeah. No, that was exactly (laughs) it. It was exactly that. She would help people who got into accidents like, Having pieces of metal stuck in your eye and things like that.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah basically, like I feel like it was an um, intersection between trauma and plastics.
0: Yeah, that sounds all right.
1: Yeah, and you can imagine like all the heinous accidents that happened, like while building a railroad. Oh, or maybe you can't. But so maybe, maybe that's like for blow the Blow up
0: mountains and then build a railroad yeah. through it. There were many things bad that happened.
1: I Wait, know. is that how
0: Phineas Gage got the thing through his head? Yeah, uh,
1: I think so. I think so, actually. Also, at the time of her moving back to California was the rise of something very crucial to American pop culture. But this one might be a hard one to guess. But like, thinking about L.A. Just Pop culture. <laughs> I mean, yeah, L.A., pop culture. Like, what is a big part of when we think about Los Angeles?
0: Like Hollywood? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she came back home right around the time that Hollywood was taking off. And this was super relevant for her plastic surgery career because she started treating traveling performers and Hollywood professionals who would kind of circle through Los Angeles at the time. Oh, so she's getting all the stars. She is getting all the stars. She is. But she actually ended up leaving LA though and moving up to Northern California, where in 1922, she decided to start her
0: own practice. Mm -hmm. In plastic surgery? I don't really
1: know in what. This woman was kind of doing like whatever she wanted. Okay, but she settled in Chinatown and was actually not really trusted by the Chinese patients that she was hoping to serve when they saw her. The they only saw this unmarried woman who wore men's clothing. And then over time, they also came to find out that she was probably seeing other women. And that was a big no-no for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's interesting because some sources said that it was confirmed that she was a lesbian and others were like, oh, maybe she was. And others called her a platonic lesbian where she was
0: like. It sounds like she was because a source would never be like, she might have been a lesbian, but a platonic. They wouldn't like, they're not going to say that unless... She was, and they didn't want to write about it. Yeah. Also, Mike, I have a question. Yeah. Do you think that the people in her community and that she wanted to see Chinese patients, but they were unsure about her? Do you think they were unsure about like the Westernized medicine that she was practicing? Yes, they were. Okay.
1: <laughs> they were. That is confirmed because they were all these like older people straight up from China. So they were still practicing and doing a lot of like herbal remedies and Mm -hmm. Eastern medicine. And so they were very hesitant about the actual practice of medicine she was doing. And then were even more hesitant because of who she was and her personality. Gotcha.
0: So a lot of different things coming together yeah
1: but she settled in Chinatown and though her Chinese patients didn't end up seeing her she was seen by a lot of white patients they loved her oh really (laughs) like I specifically (laughs) it's so funny but it's Okay, so there's a couple things that are noteworthy and interesting to me about this. So I'll just like say them. The first is something that I think you could probably guess, but she was really popular with a lot of white female patients. Why do you think that that is? What do you think that she was most likely to support women in?
0: Like, mm-hmm. like abortion? hmm Or mm-hmm. like just reproductive
1: things? <laughs> but because she was one of the only... Doctors in the city open to listening to women who needed birth control and abortions. She was really well liked by her female patients, her white female patients.
0: Mm. See, what really threw me yeah. off is she was practicing plastic surgery before. So I
1: was See, like, that's what I was like. I was you like, can't hone in. <laughs> like what? I know you can't hone in on the plastic surgery part that much anymore. Now I think she's kind of practicing more like PCP general energy.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. But yeah, you're going to be so confused. But
1: anyway, okay. So she also apparently decked out her office in traditional Chinese decorations and her patients loved that, which is, I know it's not amazing, but like I could be critical from a retrospective view, Mm -hmm. but from her end, it probably made total sense because you lean into the thing that's going to get you business. And if her culture is being exoticized, but to her benefit. I mean, I understand why she would lean into that.
0: Especially if she's trying to make her name for herself, being the first Chinese American physician.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But in 1925, this is where you're going to be so confused. Oh God. She helped establish the first Western hospital in Chinatown. And she led its OBGYN and pediatrics unit. What?
0: So random.
1: <laughs> yeah, she was really like, she just knew a lot of stuff. And she was clearly very, very smart and had a broad medical knowledge.
0: Oh, my But it's-, it's also
1: so funny because right now, that would not be possible. Like, you couldn't go from like, or just general surgery, like residency training, to plastic surgery on the railroads, to general
0: PCP, to ob peds Yeah. OB-GYN-PEDS isn't even a similar profession. No. Like OB-GYN and PEDS. Just because ob pushes out the PEDS doesn't mean they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> but by 1931,
1: she had this, from an outside perspective, incredible life. She had a thriving practice. She lived in this cool, bohemian, queer-friendly part of San Francisco and basically had every material thing she wanted. And they were all these things that she couldn't have as a kid. Yeah, it's, I mean, she made a name for herself and like, good for her. But that was the year that Japan invaded China in World War II. Oh, no. And Margaret, being the patriot that she was, even in a country that confusingly admonished her and celebrated her at the same time, Hmm. whatever, she organized these rice bowl parties, is what they're called, to fundraise for the war effort in over 700 U.S. cities. How she did that, I, I don't know. I could not tell you. 700
0: U.S. cities? How do you even reach out to people in 700 cities? I can't even think of 700 cities.
1: (laughs) Did it work? I mean, it did work. She raised a lot of money, I think. She also, though, was because she had such a thriving practice and was so well connected with a lot of patients in the city. She was approached one day by an unemployed Navy man named Stephen Bancroft who asked her how he could volunteer his services to defend China because he was feeling really bad for like the Chinese who were being invaded by Japan. And he was in the reserves at the time he wasn't on active duty and it wasn't getting paid. And he was like, I would do this. So slightly weird because even though like, even though she's Asian, that doesn't mean she has any direct contacts in China. Yeah. Didn't. (laughs) But she did lend him an ear and they sat in her home and had dinner. And soon it wasn't just him, but all his pals came too. (laughs) So they would have these cute little dinners at Margaret's house. And in her autobiography, she said that one night one of them, quote, spoke up and said, gee, you are as understanding as a mother and we are going to adopt you. But hell, you are an old maid and you haven't got a father for us. Then, wait, what does this mean? (laughs) Well, I don't know. He was like, oh, you're our adoptive mom, but, but you don't have a dad. So, like, we don't have a dad. So what does that mean? And she was, like, saying that she was feeling very facetious that night. And so she cracked back at them and said... Quote, well, that makes you a lot of fair haired bastards, doesn't it? And that name stuck. So the fair haired bastards are what all these military men were called, saw Margaret Chung as their adoptive mom. It was this very interesting relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So they actually called her Mama Chung or Mom Chung. What? Yeah. That's awesome, kind of. (laughs) It was interesting. And over the course of the 1930s, this association of like fair-haired bastards grew to thousands of pilots, submariners, admirals, congressmen, and eventually celebrities, including actor John Wayne and
0: a young Ronald Reagan. How did she mentor them all? How was she? the What? I don't believe it. It can't be true.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's true. I swear and apparently amelia Earhart was one of her few bastard daughters this is wild (laughs) i know she single-handedly also this is so cool she also got because she was so connected to these people got over a hundred pilots to serve for this really famous squadron called the flying tigers which were this covert squadron that flew in china under chinese colors and She was a true patriot. She was a true, true freaking patriot. But through these dinners and this group, the amount of social capital that this woman had was insane.
0: I mean, a future president called her Mama Chung. So I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I know. And I do think, so I was reading in places that
1: she would have men over to her house and like have these guys over just to, you know, have for dinner. But then she would also frequent a lot of the bars or restaurants in San Francisco that had a lot of military men because she was already so connected with these people that she, for example, if someone who she, who was her adopted son, let's say, and his family were at a dinner for whatever, she would go spend time with them. And then he would connect her to like his buddies who were at the same restaurant. And so that's kind of how that worked is. Very strong. Yeah. Networking. I was going to say. Exactly. Exactly. And so she had so much social capital and what she did with it was amazing. She was, like you said, a patriot. She was basically a national celebrity. Um, She was a symbol of Chinese American cooperation. And she was a big part of, helping to try to de-lump or separate the different people of Asian backgrounds. Mm. She helped to kind of stop the lumping of like Japanese and Chinese individuals and things like that, right? Because at the time, Japan equals evil. China equals neutral slash not evil. And so she was kind of feeding into that. And especially with her aggressive like patriotism, Mm-hmm. There was only more reason to, you know, support that. Gotcha. Gotcha. She would also send letters to her sons when they were at war. And some of the letters she wrote to them became content of newspaper articles and comic book features. What? I know. She literally had a comic book written after her. Well, she a superhero, isn't it? And I think she had a movie too. No. This is crazy. But she was cool. This is not I know, what I expected I at all. I <laughs> I also did not I did not expect this either. And but she was just the biggest patriot and I'd say the most impressive thing though about this woman about her situation is that all these people were really important and she had them in her back pocket. She had so many important people in her back pocket and that's the most impressive thing about it.
0: Yeah. And
1: So she used that power at the beginning of the war and into the war to start a new military volunteer organization or branch of the Navy called WAVES, which stood for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Services. And it was a branch of the Navy for women exclusively. Oh, that's awesome. I know, right? So the main person in charge of Waves was actually a woman, not Margaret. It was Her name was Mildred McAfee, but it was Margaret who proposed the idea. She collected all the social support and political support to see that this idea could make it through the House and the Senate. That's how much social capital she had with these military dudes. It's was literally
0: like whipping votes, it sounds like.
1: I know, I know. But the super, super messed up thing is that, you know, she, as one does, would, after all of this, expect to be running the organization she basically created Mm -hmm. or, you know, be in it at all. No. All of her applications for Waves were mysteriously rejected and maybe it was i know and maybe it was because of her sexuality maybe it was because uh, officially on all of the things they say it was because of her age because she was over 50 at the time but i don't know it's just something about it is very fishy right cuz after doing all this work like why would you reject the person who who made this possible
0: yeah like even if she could have just joined if she's older to be a mentor for the younger women joining yeah and like a teacher it does not make sense And
1: that didn't stop her from pushing on. She was committed to the war effort. She spoke where she could. She would tend to the injuries of her returned adopted sons. She would raise money in support of China. She did a lot. But because of all this, she wasn't able to commit as much to her own medical practice. And by the end of the war, she almost had to give it up. I was wondering about
0: that. I'm like,
1: she's doing a lot of stuff that's not medically related. She didn't have time for medicine. And so she had to put all those things on the back burner. But when the fair-haired bastards heard about it, they raised enough money amongst themselves to pay for her mortgage. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, that's so cute. But by the end of the war, Margaret's career had come to an end. She was so committed to her country at the cost of her career as a surgeon and physician. And for the next 14 years, she became more frail and could only do a couple of hours of work a day. Mm. She also threw herself into her relationship. This is where some sources say, Oh, it was a platonic friendship and others are like, she had a relationship with this vaudeville singer actress named Sophie Tucker. Her. I don't know. I, I, I think they had a relationship. She also had a relationship with like this Canadian poet who was outwardly gay. And I'm like, you know what? Let her live her life. Like, I'm yeah. here for that. Whatever. If they're platonic, fine. If they weren't, even better. Like, yes. But yeah, so Margaret basically slowly bowed out of medicine. Her Chinese background that had once helped her in her peak years to become as famous as she did was now the m- issue in her life again, just like it was in her childhood.
0: Mm-hmm. Because in
1: the 1950s, Americans saw China as part of the red terror of communism spreading across the world. They were no longer, in Americans' minds, Chinese folks were no longer this fun, exotic, foreign people that they had been for a bit. You know, yeah. they, were, they were evil in their minds. That's too bad. I know. But in 1958, she underwent a surgery for ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And because she knew she was going to go, she took the time to get her affairs in order and even plan her funeral, inviting her thousands of adopted sons to
0: the funeral.
1: And many of them did come, like hundreds of them came. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, but she died on January 5th in 1959 at the age of 69. Wow. But she did do a lot in the 69 years that she was alive. She lived an extraordinary life, touching thousands of people and doing so in a really personal and beautiful way. Mm -hmm. And I also think her story is very American. She had some good luck and privilege afforded to her. Like the fact that her career could take off during the war because even though she was Asian, at least she was Chinese. And at the time, mm-hmm. Chinese folks weren't the enemy per se. Like that is a privilege, but it was fully like luck that got her to that point, right? Not to that, right. point, got to that point, but it was luck that she wasn't seen as the villain. Yeah, yeah. But it's also American in that her standing in society was fully at the mercy of how others saw her. And that view could change at any moment. It's like the highs are really high, but the lows are really low. And I think that ties in really well to the idea of the model minority and what that means for Asian Americans in this country. And I want to discuss that more in our feminist corner, but I wanted to end with a quote from Margaret that I really liked. She said, I used to be ladylike and deferential, but found it didn't pay. Everywhere I was stepped on. Now I treat them rough and they lap it up. <laughs> and maybe she didn't use that intonation, but that's kind of how I imagine it. And mm. I was like, go, Margaret, make them eat out of the palm of your hand. And she did. And they did. Future presidents did. <laughs> I know. So, yeah, but. I'd love to talk about her more and talk a little bit about the context in which she lived
0: yeah shooketh right now i'm shooketh. <laughs> i'm very much ready to discuss margaret okay let's do it thank we are okay so what are your thoughts what are you thinking Shar? like i said i am shooketh i i knew she was involved with the war i didn't say that in the beginning when you started talking about it i was like i know this but i didn't realize to the extent she was involved with the war mm. i just have so many questions i am convinced now at this point that margaret Chung actually owned the time stone and she was able to travel through time (laughs) and space to be in a million places at once because she was literally hosting rice bowl parties, raising money, mentoring like hundreds of men. And she's also out here like starting a whole new section of the Navy. She is running her own business. She's Going on dates with these girls, she's she's living her life, and I am honestly shook. It was just a weird time. I feel like in the United States being born at the end of the eighteen hundreds, and then living during the World Wars, just a lot of things going on, like socially in the U.S. and then being a minority, and yet she still was amazing. I know, and being an actively oppressed minority—not that all minority
1: folks are not oppressed, but like the Chinese Exclusion Act was literally called the
0: Chinese Exclusion Act. Like it was not blatantly calling out the hatred. And yet she still found a way to go to medical school and still found a way to have a successful business. I agree. I think when I was
1: learning about her, I kept unveiling more and more layers and I wanted to do She's this like episode. an episode. She is like an onion, like a parfait. But I was thinking about her because I remember wanting to talk about her for Asian and American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, but then also, you know, with the sociopolitical climate, which I'll talk about in a bit. But I feel like celebrating Asian stories is so important. And I am so inspired by this woman. I think she's so cool.
0: I know she kind of I I like the health policy aspect, like she's doing policy, but she's like working in the government, which I think is interesting because I've recently become more interested in getting involved in like policy work. And
1: she did do cool work in the Navy and stuff, which I think also goes to show the power of social networking. And even though it's so annoying in so many ways, it does get you really far. So yeah, she's just a great example of that. So this is a fun little question but some say that Margaret Chung was beyond her time. And I just wanted to ask what time period or generation you think you would want to live in, or if you were meant to be in a different generation than the one we exist in now. I was just thinking about one more along the lines of like, oh, what would I, I think I've talked about this before. Like I wanted to like live in the twenties because Mm -hmm. I thought that would be fun. And I think I still stand by that, but I think I could see myself, this is so sad and boring, but I could see (laughs) myself existing on the cusp between the fifties and sixties. That's what I was going to say.
0: I could see that time, like when my grandma would have been like a teenager, I guess, is what I'm imagining.
1: I could see that. I could see that more so for you because it's like this cusp of like, everything is pretty stable in a way, but there is this undercurrent of, something is going to change. And then mm-hmm. going into the time where, okay, we're making change. I think that is like really powerful. And I think that's the time that we're living in now too, right? Or maybe that's always, and you just have to jump at the yeah, opportunity that's true. to make change. There's always an
0: inkling of change. You just have to right. be aware. You right. know what's going on in the world.
1: We touched on this a little bit before, but I wanted to expand and ask what, do you know about the model minority
0: in general? I know there is the perfect idea of like what type of minority you should be that the majority accepts better. I hate stereotyping, like making assumptions, but saying like that uh, Asian American person is going to be the smart person and like do all the things they're not interfering with anyone else around them. They're just furthering like careers and the economy and things like that. So people are like, it's fine. Like that type of idea which has so many horrible things wrong with it. But that's what I imagine when I think of like the model minority idea. That's the whole thing, right? Is that it's
1: a myth, but it's a myth that's harmful. And so, of course, thinking about it is induces discomfort because it's not an inherently good thing. It's a problem. And you're right. So the model minority refers to a minority group being perceived as particularly successful especially in a way that compares them with other minority groups. And I think that's an important distinction is it's relative. It's like, okay, this is the ideal minority group, but in comparison to who in comparison to other minority groups, which is problematic because it puts people who are oppressed by the majority against each other Mm -hmm. and can lead to harmful rhetoric. So specifically in our case, and which this is the most common case is that Asian Americans are praised for their apparent success in academics, economics, and cultural areas of their lives. And this generalization applies to all Asians, implying that all Asians are the same, which is a problem inherently.
0: Right. but What Margaret
1: that tried to pull into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then that Additionally, is this idea that, okay, all Asians are the same, and then all of them experience these positive things of success in academics and economics, etc. And so they therefore don't experience racism, and they're able to keep the American dream alive. Very problematic. So, there's like a twofold problem, right? Yeah, it's this idea of like, okay, all Asians are the same, which no one is a monolith, no gender, racial, any kind of identity group is one. And then on top of that, this minority myth puts people in a space where they are experiencing racism, but are viewed as not experiencing racism because. They are celebrated for this generalization that's made about them. It's really convoluted.
0: Right. And then it's like ends up dismissing like someone's experience when they are experiencing racism or when they are experiencing discrimination. Yeah. And they're saying, well, you can't because you've been this group or something. Putting people in the box.
1: But how do you feel like the, min- the model minority myth played into or maybe didn't play into margaret's life at all
0: i feel like it did play into it because she fit it in yeah the way in the way that a chinese american would like she was, she was very successful in her job she was a physician she was a trailblazer she just fit into that stereotype of a model minority basically and i think it ended up helping her in the end which sucks but it definitely like launched her for it because people respected her for it instead of maybe someone else who isn't viewed as a model minority doing the same things as them saying, like, you're being problematic now because you're trying to do all these things.
1: I agree. I think I felt like her successes were seen as these really great patriotic American things. But when her race or gender or sexuality didn't align with what looked good, she was rejected or shut down, like how she was rejected from waves based off of her mm-hmm. age or something, but it was probably an underlying factor that they didn't want an Asian American woman running this program that she had basically created, but they didn't want her to be the face of it because right. Even they want her to they, be
0: successful, but not right. the successful one, like not yes. the top one. You can't succeed yes. all the way. just enough for like how we want you to kind of thing.
1: Yeah, just enough so that you can be the good patriotic example that we talk about yes. on,
0: in comic books and in movies and in the news. And only in the ways that are like acceptable for that time. Like it sounds like they continuously tried to hide her sexuality because it didn't align with what people accepted at that time by any means. But they still tried to push her like they still loved her either way. They're just trying to hide a piece of her. But that's not fully loving her as a person if you have to hide like who she really is too.
1: And something that all of this was bringing up for me is the social climate we're living in now. So we're seeing a lot of increase in anti-Asian hate crimes across the country. They're increasing in frequency and severity, and especially since the beginning of COVID. And then also in the last couple of months in particular. Mm -hmm. And it's been making me think about Margaret and then also this idea of the immigrant tax where people like my parents or first generation immigrants in general sometimes will endure poor or unjust treatment because they feel lucky to even be here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not to make light out of something really heavy, but it's like When you get invited to a party that you never thought you'd be invited to and you go and then someone is making this like weird off-putting comment, but you don't say anything because you're like, well, I'm just happy to be here. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like how I would
0: describe the immigrant tax. Yeah. 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 I mean, that makes sense. It's just putting it simply.
1: Yeah. And like, that's the energy. And so, and I think that that comes up with Margaret but not with Margaret because she isn't first generation I think she grapples with a lot of the things that like first generation American born immigrant parent like Mm -hmm. kids feel is this division between I have my own culture and identity and like My parents taught me X, Y, Z, and I feel very American. Like I grew up here and I know this culture. So how do I reconcile both of these things? And like, I don't think we should be paying an immigrant tax in a way. Like I don't owe anyone anything. I'm not just going to take poor treatment. Like I'm an American and I stand up for myself and et cetera, et cetera. But then that, that, isn't how that pans out. People don't want to hear what you have to say. People will shut you down. That's kind of what that brought up for me, and it's this idea of like anti-Asian hate and Asians being viewed as meek. We like they'll just take it, and they won't because mm-hmm. Asians, especially East Asians, are so strong, and they have such wonderful familial connections and roots. And not to generalize, these are just observations that I've made from people that I know, but. They're just wonderful. And they have this like strong sense of identity. And yet we have so many stereotypes about them
0: that are rooted mm-hmm. in history. Yeah. It's funny you say that about the struggle between like being American born and immigrant parents. Um, Cause that's what I thought of when she got denied from the missionary, how that she yeah, wasn't I was allowed about because that too. she was Chinese. I was like, this reminds me a lot of what Alicia has told me about how she feels living <laughs> In the U.S. Um, Yeah, I mean, I agree.
1: I mean, I don't know if I have, like, that much more to say about this other than, like, acknowledging it and, like, and putting our support against, like, anti-Asian hate crimes, obviously, but... Yeah. I will say, like, there is a quote that I think about a lot that I think kind of ties in this idea of, like, neither here nor there kind of thing, and the quote is too foreign for here, too foreign for home, never enough for both. And I just was so moved by that quote Mm -hmm. that it like has stuck with me for a long time. So
0: yeah, I think, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's also so interesting, but I do appreciate this woman. I celebrate her. She is the epitome of like what I think of when I think of the American dream in a way, Mm -hmm. even though The American dream is so much of a farce, but I think if I had to describe someone as that, it would be her, you know, this like pulling yourself up and like breaking boundaries. And she has done so much for women today and
0: -hmm. and
1: our abilities as female physicians. Like she's opened so many doors, doors that we probably don't even think about being open for us because she did the labor of pushing it. And so this one's for you, Margaret.
0: Yeah, and I really like, how patriotic she was in a country that was so not accepting of her, like ultimately, even if they were pretending because she was patriotic in the way of she wanted to advance her country. She wanted to make it accessible to more people and, you know, start new programs and build a family of over a thousand men accepting people (laughs) where they are. You know, she just wanted to like further the U.S. And I think that's cool. Um, I think that's what most people want to do and they challenge like what's going on in the country and they challenge policy and they challenge people's thoughts and they just want to make it a better place for everyone to live in and be accepted. And that's exactly what she was doing. That's like the most patriotic thing I think you could do for your country.
1: I'm here for all of this. I love you all. And if you love us, you should subscribe to the podcast yes. we're available on all podcasting apps, of course. And then if you want to leave a rating and review, You can do that on Apple Podcasts. It's the best place.
0: Yeah, you can also follow us us on social media. We are From Skirts of Scrubs on Facebook and on Instagram. And you can check out our website, which is from fromskirtswithscrubs.com, where you can find our show notes, our sources, our merch, uh, any other information you'd like to know or you'd like to contact us at.
1: Yes. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making more bonus content. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, you can send us an email, send us an Instagram DM, just contact us. We are here for that.
0: And lastly, as always, here's to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today, such as Margaret, and may we do the same for those who come after us.
1: Yay! See you next time!